You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, Vox and Hops heads? I'm Matt, the vocalist of Cryptopsy, and you're listening to my podcast, Vox and Hops, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians to talk about their lives, music, and craft beer. I hope that you have had a wonderful weekend. I took the time to relax and to hang out with my family. I love doing that. I love cherishing that. These small moments like that are very important, and we have to focus on the positive things right now because we are living in a world flooded with negativity, and I just want to embrace everything that makes me happy. And this past weekend, I had a bunch of moments like that. I suggest that you do the same. This Vox and Hops episode is presented by Heavy Montreal. Heavy Montreal is Montreal's premier metal promoter. They put on one of North America's biggest and best metal festivals each summer. They also promote a whole bunch of amazing metal shows throughout the year here in Montreal. I'm so stoked to have them presenting the podcast. It is truly, truly an honor. On today's episode, I'm with Neil Fallon of Clutch. Here it is, Vox and Hops, episode number 171. I warn you, what you are about to hear is very disturbing indeed. Hey, what's up, everyone? Today I'm with Neil Fallon of Clutch. It is super good to see you. Last time I saw you, we were both uh, at Heavy Montreal, and I saw you on stage, and that's the last time that I saw you. So uh, let's start with a very, very easy question. How are you? How are you doing? How are you coping with all the madness that is happening in the world? Uh, Well, I suppose in a lot of ways, it's not like any... um, The situation for me is not unlike anyone else's. It's uh, a day-by-day process, you know, with a family. Uh, you know, there's good days, bad days, uh, but thankfully, uh, the band, you know, Clutch, is, we all live geographically close to each other, so we can still rehearse nice. uh, and uh, do the live stream thing, which was sort of the forced learning curve of this, you know, episode in our lives, but it's it's working out all right. I think it'll, that's what's going to get us from point A to point B, so to speak. In the big picture, we have nothing to complain about. It's 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 almost like a, a blessing in disguise that the technology is where it's at when we have hit this point in our <laughs> at this horrible experience in our lives. Yeah, you know, I, I totally agree. It's um, like my my son who's ten. You know, is he the way he communicates to his friends now is chat on Fortnite. And six months ago, I was not down with that, and now it's a it's a godsend. You know, if I can imagine what I would have been like if had this happened in 1981, uh, it wouldn't have been a good scene. <laughs> no, just completely isolated, sending sending snail mail letters back and forth. Probably. Or being like uh, Rocky and Rocky and opening his window and screaming, Hey, Adrian! <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, for me, it's uh, with my main concern is when all is said and done, one way or another, this is going to end eventually but i think the psychological trauma for some kids is gonna we won't know about that for quite some time and that that's what spooks me uh not to get too dark but no no i can we try to try to keep things light and you know have some kind of routine um go on day drives get out of the neighborhood it's those things count for a lot I completely agree because I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and it's at the point where we go out in Montreal. 
we don't live downtown, but we still live on the on the island, close enough to downtown. So there's always a, a vast population of people out, and it's at the point where my daughter is trained to move away from people. And what is the effects going to be if if it's been five, three, four months at this point that she's been trained to do this, which is you know a big portion of her life? What is going to yeah. happen afterwards? And I'll, I'll say, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. I was you know many times my wife and I have spoken and saying how lucky we are that our son is 10 because he's still, he's not a teenager, so he isn't sulking, but he's not four or two. He's not completely dependent on us. He's independent and quite hasn't hit the puberty train. So I think we kind of hit a sweet spot with parenthood here in, it is. in context of this nonsense. Absolutely. Me being in the band, trying to keep uh, the music flowing, conducting a bunch of Vox and Hobbs interviews. My wife uh, wrote a children's book during the nice. pandemic, and I helped her do that. I was still working from home and balancing having two little children. You know, you got to have patience has been tested to the utmost <laughs> yeah. in the past a lot of walks everybody's taking a lot of walks you have to <laughs> that's the only way you have patience uh, Vox and Hops is all about hanging out with my metal friends and talking about their lives music and craft beer what beer do you have on your side there Neil that we're going to share I have a Bell's Lager of the Lakes and I chose this well because it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon and I don't want to hit myself over the head with something huge but uh uh, this is fantastic. You know, it's a lager. So it's, uh, I don't know what the percentage is, probably like five or something. Uh, but it doesn't, it tastes pretty big for what it is. You know, I've become accustomed to big beers as, as many of us have. But especially in the summertime, you know, after a bit of yard work, something like that is pretty fresh. And I love Bells. Bells is fantastic. Absolutely. And I find it very refreshing that loggers and pilsners are coming back strong, that there's a, a new interest in them uh, fighting this, this haze craze, which I love. I love the haze craze. Yeah. But, but uh, on a nice summer afternoon, it is great to just drink something refreshing, which is what those beers were created for, right? It was created mm -hmm. to hydrate the farmers out there and to hydrate the workers and to keep them safe when the water wasn't potable. Yeah, it's I can see it's like many things in life where the tastes and trends swing back and forth. And of course, in the United States with prohibition, we got stuck with a certain kind of beer for decades and almost a century. And then people started doing the microbrew thing and well, let's let's make a chipotle peach lambic, you know, it's always <laughs> like, well, okay, that's great. But there's something to be said about these, you know, European beers done right. Um, that's one of the cool things about touring is, you know, in Europe is getting beer served in that really old school way. And I think uh, beers like this kind of hit the sweet spot. You know, it's a North American brand of it, but it is refreshing. And I love it. And I love that it's it's coming back to its its uh, original form, because uh, as you mentioned, the the um, a chipotle lambic. There's a lot of ways you can hide a flaw <laughs> in that, but you can't yeah. hide a flaw in a nice lager or a uh, a classic pills. On my side, I'm drinking Bench Brewing Company from uh, Niagara, Canada. This is their Rosé Wildwood. It is a barrel fermented sour ale on strawberries and Pinot Noir. Boom. Yes, I picked it because. Uh, I read that you guys put out a dark sour ale, which I want to talk about afterwards, and I thought that it might be up your alley. That just for the record, uh, truly in clutch, the, the beer expert is John Paul. 
he is the guy who can he can talk about it for days. Um, not quite. That's not quite my pay grade, but uh, I'm the end user. Uh, <laughs> you you but, benefit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Our, our uh, the band writer is is pretty telling. <laughs> cheers. Hey, cheers. Thank you so much for meeting up with me. Salute, of course. Mm, fantastic tart. You can taste that strawberry. Complex Sours, love them so much. Bench is doing some uh, fantastic stuff out of Niagara. They treat beer more like wine, which I find super, super refreshing and interesting. Uh, take me back to your, in your beer youth, growing up as a beer drinker. Do you remember your first beer? Well, um, well I have photographic evidence of me like at a, a party with my parents when I was two holding like uh, a Budweiser. I mean, I wasn't drinking it, but it's, you know, it's one of those old school pull tabs, um, which is why they would give it to a two-year-old kid, because that's a great way to lacerate a finger. <laughs> that's how you grew up. Um, I don't remember precisely exactly. You know what? Come, I do remember my first beer, you know, underage. It was actually um, a Molson, uh, and I think it was called, and I don't think it exists anymore. It's called, it was Brador. Does that sound familiar? Not to me, but uh, it is very possible. It was like a dark beer, and uh, my first employer was from Montreal, and he was always drinking Molson, and he was a great boss because he would give me beer at 16, 17, you know, one. Um, and that was my first beer, so to speak. Uh, I might have had a sip here and there with my dad, but I don't recall those uh, like I do that. How did your palate develop over the years? You mentioned that uh, John Paul, you said, is the true craft beer nerd of Clutch. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you grow with him? Take, take me on your craft beer journey. Well, um, old enough to remember when we would go to a bar and they had Samuel Adams and we thought that was really exotic. It was. It was uh, cool. It was it's, yeah. it's Pioneer Craft Beer Brewery right there. Yeah. And now it's, you know, it's it's. Uh, everywhere and that's cool uh, and I do remember that one of my first craft beers when I turned 21 there was a liquor store across the street from my apartment I got a Sierra Nevada Porter drank it with a eating a liverwurst sandwich and went directly to bed because <laughs> that'll do you in uh, and then we, when we started touring and we started going out west we saw more of these kind of beers we did never heard of particularly out in California, Colorado. Um, and that's when I, I think we all realize that beer is much more involved than your Budweiser's and Miller's and you know, you know the things that your dad drank. Um, I think like a, John Paul's definitely much more of a, a sour guy. Uh, he, he loves that stuff and that, that kind of helped define what the clutch beer was that we did with um new belgium thank you jesus <laughs> it's two o'clock it's okay yeah <laughs> thank god i'm drinking a light beer I'm a, I'm a little bit out of my head right now because i just moved into a new house and me not being able to remember new belgium is an indication that i, I can't find anything in my house right now mm-hmm. including my brain <laughs> it's a little out of my head but at any rate so I'm trying to think what what else we got into after that, but 
we wanted to make um, a big beer, a, a winter beer. Uh, with you know, we were involved with it. You know, we did a lot of development and research, so to speak. So, how take uh, me through the whole thing? Because I'm very, very curious. Uh, being a crypt shopsy and wanting to make a craft beer with a, a brewery for a long time, we, we spend many late nights when we probably should be in bed coming up mm-hmm. with all these weird-ass beers that we would make. Uh, talk me through this whole relationship with New Belgium and how uh, the clutch beer came to fruition. It's a pretty wild story. We, had a, we were on tour and we had a day off and we decided to park up in Fort Collins, uh, kind of outside of town. Uh, off the highway, and I was bored and just walked into town. And in the process, by the university there, there's a restaurant, and I walked into it just sight unseen to get something to eat. And as I was walking out, uh, Eric Salazar, who works for New Belgium, was walking in, or vice versa. He recognized me and asked me who I, if I was Neil, and I said yes, and he was a fan of the band. That's cool. And then he invited us to the brewery. Uh, and some of us went. It was a blast. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been. It's an incredible facility. I have not, sadly, but it's on my list yeah. of things to do. It's uh, done really well. And at the end of the tour, you know, you're up on a second floor and there's a spiral slide that you kind of see at a playground. So by the end of the tour, you're a little bit tipsy. And then you get on the spiral <laughs> slide and go to the gift shop. It's very, very smart. Genius. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, then we just kind of hit it off and became friends. He became friends with the band. Uh, he would come to the shows in Denver or Boulder, uh, a couple handful of times we played in Fort Collins. And then the subject came up of doing a, a collaboration. And we we're like, sure, we want to do that, but we do not want to just slap our name on something that already exists. We want to have fun with this, be involved with this. So we went there, uh, John Paul, uh, Dan, and myself. And I can't remember what year it was. Um, and they, we just kind of sat around a round table and brainstormed. Like, what do you like? And I said, I like, uh, it was a, um, it was a porter or stout done by Great Lakes Brewery. And I can't remember what, which, what it was. I mentioned, I like that. And John Paul, like a sour. And then they brought in a bunch of, of their own beer and they said, well, one thing we like to do is they had a stout and they had their, uh, cherry sour, La Folie, and they poured them together. And we said, like, wow, this is kind of like the best of both worlds. And then it was all about ratios. And uh, it, it immediately became much more involved than I, I could, you know, all I was reduced to was like, I like this more and I like this less, you know, and that was great fun. And um, that was it. And then they, we went back and we poured, you know, the hops in. You know, we were actually, and uh, I think actually, if I remember correctly, John Paul may have thrown a drumstick into the original <laughs> wart uh, or something, something along those lines. It's extra clutchy. Yeah. And that was that. And we're very proud of it. You know, it was a, it was a big, big beer. I think it was 9%. And, and, you know, being in a band, you know, I thought like rock and roll critics were something else but then i got introduced to the world of beer critics holy shit <laughs> there's some opinions out there <laughs> it's it's but, so subjective that's why too yeah, it's, it's even yeah, more I mean, subjective yeah i think your taste buds 
are, you know, it's, it's also much a much more intrusive thing. Like, if you don't like something, you just turn it off. But if you drink something, you can't turn off the, the lingering taste. And people have a very <laughs> emotional reaction to it, and, and rightly so. But uh, it was good. It was great fun. I saw that it had a good reception. I think it, uh, even to this day, I checked earlier today, I think it's got a 3.6 on 5 untapped, which is, which is not a horrible rating whatsoever. Oh, that's cool. Good to know. <laughs> I, I think for us, it was just an opportunity to, to do something fun. And it was very flattering that they would want to do that with us. You know, it wasn't certainly a money-making endeavor or anything like that. It was a clutch fans will like this. Well, most of them will. We're having fun. They're having fun. So it's kind of a no-brainer. It's, it's sort of a, with all of the prohibition laws, it makes it difficult. It's not something that you could bring as a merch item, sadly, which would be no, very no. interesting as a band to do, especially for me, because <laughs> I love craft beer so much. But it's not feasible like that. And the liquor laws are just so rigid. So it's just more mm-hmm. of a fun thing. And they sent you some cases. And you guys had a whole bunch of clutch beer for a while. We did. And there were venues that would get their hands on a keg. Cool. Um, and that was really cool. Uh, it was hard to come by. They did a second run of it. It was a little bit different. I couldn't really t- taste too much of the difference. Uh, I think they had their their reason, reasons. I mean, the the people that are professional brewers, you know, you have your their tech, their scientists who are looking at yeast strains under microscopes and white lab coats, and then there's the people who have the nose and the olfactory senses. That it's almost like. Um, I don't know what the right word is, a synesthesia that they can taste something and use words in a way that folks like myself can't. And it was really impressive. You could smell something, say, oh, it's too much, too much bretomyces or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a skill set I think you have to be born with and then trained, you know, pretty ex- excessively at to be good. It's like being have, a musician, you know, you're going to have perfect pitch or close yeah. to perfect pitch, but if you're not going to work it, it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to become that perfect, perfect pitch. And it's interesting. It's like Kandinsky, as you mentioned, being able to see colors and hear yeah. colors. And that's what these beer gods, these beer creator gods <laughs> are doing in the yeah. world of craft beer. And at the end of the day, if you guys like the beer, it's the exact same thing as when you guys make an album. The album is for you. If you are a fan of it, if you are a fan of the beer, then, you know, the critics can say whatever they want. Yeah, I think it's always very, very transparent, very obvious when a band has, or an artist, whatever, has made something thinking that this is what people might like. It's it, it's always pretty obvious. Whereas artists that do something that is challenging to listen to is always more rewarding in the end. The albums that you have to listen to a couple times and then you kind of get it and then you latch on to it because it's got sincerity. Which is something that I feel in this new modern age, these new kids, these young kids, no, no disrespect to any kids that are watching this younger people, but to, to have the patience to give an album a second chance or to simply just listen to an album is something that is just not what happens anymore in the digital age. I, I do not envy young rock bands trying to come up now. I mean, it's so much uh, traffic out there and background noise and the idea that you have to be silly to get heard is it's a drag uh I've, i don't uh, you know sometimes you hear like oh rock and roll is dead and that's all just nonsense i mean it's a lot 
just as alive as it ever was. It's just that now everything has a level playing field. Hmm. Uh, there's probably the world's biggest rock band of the future is in a garage right now. And just because they're not huge on social media doesn't mean a thing, really and truly. Uh, but yeah, to, to, to be heard, you know, I've always, A&R representatives were sort of the filter up until recent times, and now there is no filter other than the algorithm. The algorithm is now everybody's A&R representative, which is a little bit spooky. And sad. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's, it's not a real person. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll say this, you know, things like Spotify or whatever, I've discovered a lot of great music that I don't think I would have. Uh, but I could see, like, there's, it's an embarrassment of riches. Like, okay, I like that song, skip to the next one. Uh, I don't like it, I'll just skip it altogether. You may have missed something amazing it's it's tough yeah and i say it all the time since i've moved to a digital platform uh, as a way to consume music i listen to way more music but i listen to less albums as like a a favorite album i save less music and i i revisit less music and that's something that i find as a consequence i'm exposed to way more but i'm cherishing less yeah I, i can i can see that um you know, when you get old, get older, you tend to kind of ossify the things that you like. And I don't think maybe it's, I don't think it's laziness. It's just that you've become the person that you are. And it becomes a little bit more challenging to find things that are, are new. But when you're 16, everything's pretty much new. <laughs> and I could, I could rattle off a hundred new bands now it's not as many, but you know I'm still trying, and I do find them. And it's uh, like I said, it is an embarrassment of riches. There's so many. I, oh, this band is huge. I was like, I've never heard of them. <laughs> you know? But how long will it be huge for? Is also the other thing because being that that's true that hit of the moment. Can you name me one of these new bands that you have discovered recently? Um, well, I don't say the new bands. Um, uh, you know who I just got stumbled upon, and it's a bit embarrassing because they've been around for a while. And we've actually played festivals with them. Is Power Trip? Oh fuck yeah! Yeah, I, when I heard this, I wasn't. I don't remember how I heard it. I was like, "What the hell is this? This is raw. This sounds." I got really charged up, and I and I realized that we had done festivals, and you know how that is. It's mm-hmm. like there's a there's 40 different bands and you might hear the band that plays before you and that's it. That's it. You know, you got to eat at a certain time. You got to, yeah. uh, you probably do your warm ups at a certain time. You, you know, if you, sometimes you got to sleep because you, it's, especially at these festival runs, it's, uh, <laughs> you got to sleep when you can. But heavy Montreal, like logistically, you got to plan ahead and you spend a good amount of time going to and fro. Uh, but man, power trip blew me away. It's, it's sincere. It's real. It reminds me of what I listened to when I was in high school. Uh, but new and and just mean. Um, All Them Witches, another band that I adore. Uh, Those are two that immediately come to mind as far as like heavy music. Classic Vox and Hops question. Take me back to your youth. When you were growing up in your parents' or guardian's house, what music was playing when you were not in control of the music? What music did your parents or guardians listen to? A lot of the usual suspects. uh, Bob Dylan, a lot of folk music, Emmylou Harris, uh, a lot of Fleetwood Mac, a lot of Fleetwood Mac, um, a lot of folk music, you know, Beatles, uh, 
nothing too out of the ordinary. Uh, I've mentioned this in a lot of interviews, but my my dad is one of his closest friends was a little bit more adventurous in music, and he gave him an album uh, by a band called the West Coast Pop Art Experimental Band, and they had an acid rock album called Help I'm a Rock, which is a Frank Zappa song. Cool. And I remember listening to that at a very young age on headphones and being terrified. <laughs> but it was that good terror, you know, good terror that like you want to taste it again. And that record left an impression on me more so than Bob Dylan, even though I love Bob Dylan now. But uh, that was a big thing. Um, and those those are the immediate ones that come. To, oh, and Buddy Holly, Roy Orbison. That kind of stuff. What band was your first band? The band that you discovered that scared your parents or scared your guardians? <laughs> um, I remember very distinctly putting a Judas Priest poster up in my in my room, <laughs> and my dad tearing it down the next no day. No way! Yeah, <laughs> my parents are you know a pretty conservative Catholic, so you know Judas Priest did not fly in my house. Um, <laughs> I, and. Uh, I also remember one time we, we went to mass and I was being an adolescent jerk. You know, I was probably 15 and I was wearing what they thought was just a white button down T-shirt. And I had to go do something that required me to go to the altar in front of the whole congregation. And on the back, it was the cult logo. Yes. And it just said the cult. <laughs> it was the, and man, that was a quiet dinner at the Fallon household that night. Uh I, used to, I remember hearing Black Flag for the first time and being terrified. And I also remember hearing Bad Brains. I mean, that was a pretty big deal hearing that band. Uh, we were very fortunate growing up around Washington, D.C. I thought having bands like the Bad Brains and Minor Threat and Fugazi was just like, that was just normal. But it was an incredibly lucky to be able to see those bands. I never got to see Minor Threat. That was I was a bit too young for that. But I saw Fugazi a ton of times, Bad Brains a uh, handful of times. Uh, and they left big impressions on Clutch. may not be obvious in what we do, but they definitely informed our trajectory in one, one way or the other. When you would go to these shows, was it ever a moment? I know myself when I would go see shows, it was like, I'm going to do that one day. Is that something that, that you had? No, not to be honest. It took, Even when I had been in the band for quite some time, I was that like... Oh, when is this going to not end, but like, is this, is this feasible? I mean, can, I mean, I love doing it. Don't get me wrong, but I got it hit into my ground, into my head over and over again, that that was not a legitimate career move. You know, it wasn't, you know, respectable. You're not going to make money, uh, go to school, get a degree, get a job you hate, and then you'll be a man. Is this coming from your household? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not so much in the literal in words like that, but just kind of implied. Uh, you know, being in a rock band was not. Uh, I think what my mother and father envisioned I would be doing. Uh, but and, and to a degree, maybe they still think that way. I'm, I'm <laughs> lucky that they're still here with us, but I still, still think they're waiting for the, the 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 phone call when I say, "Oh, I'm going back to school." So it's not <laughs> happening. I've been in this band for more than half of my life. Um, really, truly, I think it's John Paul and Tim. They was were the dudes that were like saw the bands and they were like, "That's what I'm doing." And because of their, I think, focus and commitment, I rode on that on that commitment coattails. 
and we did the band for the better part of the 90s and it was right around 2000 when families kind of entered the picture that I asked myself and and we've been dropped from the labels again like for the third or thousandth time no more tour support been in the band for seven eight years are we going back in the van mm-hmm. and at that point it was like all right, well, you can go back in the van or you could try something else from scratch. And I was like, no, I'm getting back in the van. I'm having too much fun. I see people in a crowd that are having fun. Uh, You get one life. Uh, I'd rather gamble (laughs) at doing something fun. And after that, it became much easier. I I think psychologically, I became much more defensive and respectful about it and treating it as something that... I was lucky and fortunate to be in a position to do this because in hindsight, I see a lot of people that were, that's all they wanted. And for whatever reason, fate, either by their own fault or not their fault, they just, it just didn't happen. And, uh, I feel a bit guilty about that, but now, you know, I can learn from that kind of, I don't know, not arrogance, but just not taking it seriously as I should have. I take it deadly seriously comes with age too yeah and uh with maturity and it is something that we do have to be eternally grateful for and with a summer such as this one whether we play no festivals which is uh, always a highlight of being a musician and touring uh you guys took to doing some live streams let's touch on that uh tell me about the decision to start doing that i th- originally it was um our booking agent uh, coupled with a, a company to do the uh, the one we did last, the do, uh, live from the Doom Saloon. It's so cool. Yeah. And, uh, thank you. It was, uh, but prior to that, we were like, well, we had talked about streaming, but we were doing shows, and the two don't compare. Uh, so we were like, I don't want to learn how to stream. But then it became a, a pretty much sink or swim. So we learned how to operate OBS, which is a free software. Uh, I think it's open broadcast. I think that's what it stands for. Yes, I think that, yeah. And set up the laptop. And then we did a couple tests on YouTube just to see if it worked. And we are very fortunate in that, well, one, we all live close to each other, as does our front of house engineer, Ted. He lives in Philly. And we own our own uh, consoles, our monitor console and our front of house console. So he would come down and do a mix. And we were able to use the in-ears, which makes a huge difference. And uh, it was great. You know, the, 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 we did the tests on YouTube. There was, I could see there were 7,000 people watching. And that's very gratifying, even though it's weird singing to the green light of a FaceTime camera. When it all said and done, you see people's reactions like that made my day. That's that's priceless. And it gives us a project because, as you know, uh, music is physical. And if we just sit around doing nothing, our muscles are going to atrophy. Uh, my vocals are going to atrophy. Uh, we're going to the muscle memory is going to fade away. And this is a great way to keep that going because we will do shows again. And we want to come out of the gate swinging and not like trying to play catch up. That's very, 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 very smart. And it is true that if we don't use our voice, that it's so hard to get it back. <laughs> it is. You know, I, I know sometimes, well, I only took my first vocal lesson just maybe about two years ago. And really? I wish I had done it, do it at 20. And it wasn't a bid to change anything or, you know, 
get a higher, more of a range, but just, so I was having trouble, uh, I was losing my voice. Uh, and so I started doing vocal warm ups religiously and it made all the difference in the world. Uh, so after doing that, I'll find myself at the end of a tour, the last show, I actually feel stronger than the first show because you're just doing it every night and every night. Having said that, we got together the other day and I hadn't sang and like really belted it out in about four weeks. And by the third song, I was like, oh, that you dummy. <laughs> you, you lazy dummy. So it's, it's easy to be comfortable. Eh? <laughs> yeah. So it's a good reminder. Um, thankfully, it was just the four of us and not a paying audience. So we'll I'll, I'll be better at it. I love the price tag, $9. It was it was perfect, perfect, uh, especially because it was a whole show. It wasn't just you guys. And very interesting. And I think that with, as this is going to continue, there's going to be more bands gonna, that are going to start doing this. Uh, if you could do it again, is there anything that you would change for future live streams? No. I mean, I think one of the things... No, I wouldn't change anything because I think it was a, uh, a great success... Uh, in a way to connect to fans and uh, pay the damn rent. Let's be honest about this. Um, one thing I think we all wrestled with is like we have all we used was this the same FaceTime camera that I'm using right now. Really cool. And we were thinking, well, we need to get some more cameras, get a video switcher, get someone in here to to switch the camera. And you know, we might still do this, but. We heard very distinctly from fans, they liked the kind of DIY raw aspect of it. It was just a single shot of the four of us, kind of like you see on stage. It wasn't slick. There wasn't a lot of production, of zero production. And that was kind of reassuring uh, that that's not what people were really interested in. They just wanted to hear the songs perform live. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. I mean, that's what I would want if I, if, you know, Bad Brains did one of these. I just want to hear them do their songs. I wouldn't be bummed if there wasn't a GoPro on the bass. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool, but it doesn't make the show. <laughs> Absolutely. Neil, one last question. Um, take me to your hangover cure. You seem to be a very controlled individual, so I doubt you get hungover very often. But when you do, what is your ritual? Oh, boy. I would say... The old man cure of Alka-Seltzer is, is, is good. Uh, pickle juice is good. Uh, pickle juice is good if you don't, you know, if you, Pedialyte is just so disgusting. I just can't, can't drink that. Of course, water, 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 water. And then about one and a half beers. <laughs> and then stop. That's where you got to stop. One and a half. That it'll just smooth things out and get a good night's rest well hydrated and you know probably do it again the next night <laughs> it happens <laughs> it, it does especially on the road especially on the road hey every time we come through a town it's an event for the people that are going to be there so sometimes mm -hmm. you know for us it might be a tuesday night for them it's something that they've been looking forward to saving for and if it's our friends it's it's something that's been planned and organized so you know, sometimes we get carried away with the, the fun that we get to have. Yeah, it's uh, it's one thing I have to keep in mind is every night can't be Friday night. Sometimes you, get, you have to fake your way through it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Especially for our vocals, too. At, at, at tw Yeah, running your mouth for three hours 
you know, is not the wisest thing after a show. And the the body doesn't process it like, you know, when you're 22. <laughs> when you're 49 and go into bed with a belly full of 7.5, tomorrow's going to be rough. <laughs> that 10 a.m. loading, yeah. <laughs> or, or at a festival when you pull up behind a, the stage and the band is, the, the, the first band is 11 a.m. kick drum. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's always a good one. <laughs> Neil, thank you so, so much. I really, really appreciate you taking the time, sharing sure. a brew with me, having a chat. Hey, I really appreciate thanks it. Thanks for Cheers. having me. Cheers. This has been great. Hey, thank you all so, so much for listening right to the end. You know that I love and appreciate that. It was so great to catch up with Neil. He is a truly a very, very cool human. Really enjoyed our chat. He is so humble, so down to earth, such a huge rock star. And I'm super stoked uh, that he took the time to uh, share a beer with me. Um, much love, respect, Neil. I uh, can't wait to, to sit down and share a brew with you in person one day. I would absolutely love that. If you uh, ever get to the level uh, where Neil is, anyone out there, any aspiring musicians, please uh, stick to your roots, stay true, be humble, because that's what Neil has done, and he's just fucking awesome. I truly, truly respect that. If you enjoyed this episode, you could like and subscribe to the Vox and Hops podcast on all of my social media accounts, which the links are available in the description of this podcast. You can subscribe to my YouTube channel, and you can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. I hope you guys have a good rest of the week. I have one more episode coming at you this Friday, but until then, remember to enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. Cheers, Vox and Hops heads. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street.